Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 399. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Dan Snow. Dan is a historian, author, reputed oarsman, adventurer, television presenter, and entrepreneur, having founded and now successfully sold History Hit. In this conversation with Dan, we discuss the journey that took him from the creation of the History Hit podcast to the History Hit TV network. We look at his experience and lessons learned from his entrepreneurial journey. We explore how history telling has changed, how it's different in a video versus a podcast, what content is working, how our viewership has changed during the pandemic, and the importance and role of history in society. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now, let's cut to the show with Dan. Dan Snow, great to have you back on the airs with me, this time on my own podcast. Last time I had you, we were doing the podcast festival, and that was before the big news. So, Dan, you, you in, in August, as I understand it, you sold History Hits to Little Dot Studios. Tell me, what was the motivation for that? Well, uh, good question. I mean, it's this endless conundrum that you have as a founder, right? When do you sell? I mean, I'm an unusual founder in that I love what I'm doing and want to continue what I'm doing no matter what. So I'm not a founder that was looking for an exit because of a, because I wanted a kind of, um, you know, a, a big, a big, like a big a load of cash or, or was, was then looking to start flip and start something else. So so I actually did kind of want the best home for history here. And it, and it is tough being out there by yourself, right? You, you, the mm. assets, it's, it's lonely. Um, if things like legal come up, uh, we, we, well, one thing, for example, is when we would, you know, when we would uh, license content, it's very difficult to get people to take us seriously, you know, whereas now, you know, we go into an organization with a massive licensing department, with a massive commercial department, with a massive legal department. So all of those things I knew would become a lot easier and would probably free me up to do the bit that I'm good at. Well, I'm, ter- I'm terrible at nearly everything else, but I'm the better more right as a kind of creative, right? And we're meeting stories and hearing about archaeological digs that are going on and thinking of fun ideas to do. And, and I was finding, I, I just, it's quite difficult to do that when you're also a founder and you, you have a role managing a company that's, you know, running really lean. Uh, we we never we were always very lucky. You know, we 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 um, you know, we got to break even pretty quick. But but it was organic growth, slow growth, and and I thought it would be nice to meet to hook up with the right buyer. And these guys are amazing. They have the world's biggest YouTube history YouTube channel. They've got ast- astonishing assets. So we moved into their offices. They absorbed us. You know, we, we weren't left. You know, we could have sold to a I imagine the kind of American-based company who might have just left us with the sort of worst of both worlds in a way. You're sort of flailing around in London by yourself, but occasionally getting, you know, bulled out by uh, like the, some scary board who are like looking for, you know, hitting KPI stuff. So, uh, so in a way, we, so I feel, we, you know, we're in the office, we, we, we pick up the phone all week. I mean, well, I think we get the better of the deal. We're picking up the phone constantly uh, around, around branded content deals. You know, they've got whole teams that do that already. So, so it feels really good. And as I say, licensing, they, when they're licensing tons of shows for their multiple YouTube channels every uh, month, 
they're just like bolting us onto it, you know, as just part of the deal. And we're just getting, we're just getting huge amounts of content added to the site all the time now, which we wouldn't have at a price and a volume that we would not have been able to get by ourselves. Just like no mm. way at all. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess part of me thinks I'll never be that sort of 65, uh, uh, you know, turns I won't be the Rupert Murdoch with a sort of sitting on top of a media empire when I'm an old guy, but I'm not sure I'm super nervous about it. I think I'm okay with that. And I, I've got a deal that allows me to be creative and being very much involved in the next few years. And so I think it's, it work, it's working and it's working really well. It's working really well at the moment. Uh, but yes, it's, it's that age old thing that I'm sure founders everywhere are kind of wrestling with. So now you're, you're sort of a, a corporate man, quote unquote, obviously with freedoms all the same. In, in the passage that you had during it by yourself, what what would be the lessons learned if you're talking to another entrepreneur who's saying, I want to launch my own online TV or is there anything else that you would share in terms of how you went about that? I mean, you obviously did well getting a break even so quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I would say it's like any advice that anyone will give you. And we were undercapitalized, right? So we didn't have enough money. Um, and therefore that becomes, you're just cash constrained. Uh, if you're prepared to, to for that, maybe if you're super young, starting out, it's exciting. You're prepared to do like heavy lifting yourself, learn how to be a, be a office manager, production manager, do your own legal, you know, all that kind of stuff, then that's great. Um, it's pretty tough if you, uh, you know, if it, it, you, know you, you, you read about like masterclass in the US or Blinkist, mm-hmm. And they just they just launch with like just massive amounts of money, right? Mm-hmm. And and that I think obviously brings huge inefficiencies. I mean, it's very interesting. We got investment at the start, and actually we wasted a good nothing serious, but a good chunk of money straight off the bat. We did waste when you've got extra money in the system, you will yeah. waste it. It's fascinating, you know. So, and we were at our best when we were running really really lean. So mm. uh, that there are there are different schools thoughts, but I think if. If I was at my age now and I was going to start something again, I'd probably want it pretty well capitalized. I think I'd want to go into it with some really good people. I mean, you know, you need to walk into a room and think everyone in this room is better than I am. Uh, and and that's the place we're at now, thankfully. But uh, it, it is that that's always it's always an, it's it's uh, it's a good feeling. There's nothing better than when your, your people that are working with you are are bringing you like great solutions, right? Fantastic solutions and opportunities rather than bringing you kind of bad news. <laughs> right, you know, or, <laughs> or tisking or you or how, you know, telling you off. We, and... Yeah, well, like, how do we get out of this? And, you know, so, um, yeah, advice though. I think, uh, yeah, be, be it, it's t- look, it, it's also really tough. You know, d- never believe the hockey, I mean, I, this probably advice for investors more than startup people, but never believe the hockey stick uh, growth projections, right? I mean, there's, there's so much, uh, it, there's so much more friction. I mean, Netflix went big. So this is four, five years ago after Netflix had really, or it was, you know, we look back, it was sort of Netflix and then it was um, uh, House of Cards as well on different networks. So it was just TV on demand, streaming on demand was becoming huge. There were a lot of white label solutions out there that allowed people to do it without eye-wateringly large amounts of money. And we thought, hey, this is great. No one's doing this history. This is so easy. We'll be at, you know, we'll be at, 10,000 subscribers, 50,000 pound revenue a month by, you know, month six. And just that just didn't happen. Right? Um, it's just a lot. It was in a, sp- it was in a spreadsheet. 
it was in the spreadsheet you know and then it just didn't happen but i mean that's maybe that's the point you've got to keep that you've got to keep that sort of optimism i guess but yeah um choose choose your colleagues really carefully um it's tough in a startup you know when you're not I mean, i'm sure my colleagues got very frustrated at me because you know if you're not paying if you're not paying market rate you can't blame people for you know i would sort of go off with the kids for three weeks at easter or something you know and then it would be like what is this guy what the hell's going on with this guy so i kind of i have great sympathy for my colleagues you know, so i was a complete div but um well, I so I guess that's, that's another problem with with kind of businesses where people are helping out and and you're not paying mm-hmm. properly and yeah so yeah advice god it's it's hey listen it's a uh it's it's always messy doing startups and it was just interesting to hear that from you one of the things you obviously did that put you on this path is to move from podcasting to tv and i was curious because when i read the guardian write-up in august it, it started off with oh dan snow's podcast network history had just been sold yeah, yeah, yeah. They they named you a, 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 as a podcast network. I was like, well, that's peculiar because I, I really think you're much bigger than that. Yeah, it's very odd. I mean, it actually, it's just completely bizarre how weird the reporting. I mean, I, to be honest, there's even subscribers of the TV channel who still go, I love listening to your podcast, and they mean the <laughs> channel. I mean, tech. So uh, the tech literacy in the what you know, SVOD subscription video on demand is a, obviously just a, no one's ever heard of it really outside the sort of little few of us that do it professionally. But yeah, it's funny. Um, the podcast, obviously that's the tip of the, that's the, uh, the big bit of the funnel that everyone talks about. That's the free mm-hmm. bit. So that's now on a million listens a, a week and it's, you know, very well known, I guess. And so when people go, you sort of half people, even though you'd expect media journalists to be a bit, a bit better than that, but people go, I guess the Dan Snow history at podcast uh, that's my, what it must be and without realizing that it's the subscription video that is the engine of the whole thing in fact uh, that's the money making part that's the money maker and it's the legacy bit and it's the bit that doesn't depend on some goon just bloviating and sort of talking nonsense and and also isn't dependent on very fluctuating ad revenue there's all sorts of reasons why i'm still most excited by the tv recurring revenue on the tv and the subscribers rather than pods and if you look at the uh, CPMs on on historical on, on first of all websites, then YouTube. You know, it's pretty scary that they they can they get it, they change quite a lot. And so I do think we're living through a bit of a podcast, you know, golden age at the moment. Great, long may it last. But I, I find it hard to believe you're going to see CPMs staying that way for a, a long time. And that's why everyone, that's why all this legacy talent is piling into podcasts it's crazy like you open mm. it another every time you open it it's like jeremy paxman I, you know, i'm sure people listen to this all over the world but for, for those who don't know in the, the uk scene i mean you, you've now reached a point and i think the us has reached out where the biggest names in uk broadcasting are now launching their own pods weekly uh and i you know i was just very very lucky uh, i got ahead of it five or six five years ahead of it really but a couple of things that are interesting are in parallels for me. One is with podcasting, there's a an asynchronous element to it. There's not a, a rigidity to the programming. It can be 42 minutes long or 63 or whatever. And similarly, as opposed to the television model of 27.42 seconds for a half hour, 52 for the hour with the advertisements and all that. There's sort of such a a canned recipe for 
traditional television stuff, both on History Hit TV and in your podcasts, there's that sort of fluidity and less rigidity to the formatting. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, that's what you've picked out, exactly what was so attractive to me as a guy 15 years into a conventional broadcast career. Uh, the whole the whole process of, of traditional media is, um, as everybody knows, you know, best, best of all, um, but is is it's very, very in, inflexible, right? So you you go through a commissioning process, which is brutal. The, the final product comes out is very, we, we, you know, there's this weird, what's that thing called? Divert conversionary evolution, or whatever, where all, t- all TV shows start to look the same. You know, it's, and it's funny, I'm very bad. I've, I've got Stockholm syndrome now. I'm, I'm writing scripts for TV shows on the, on the t- TV channel, on the history of TV. And, uh, and I'll kind of write a pre-title and I'll put a title sequence in, then I'll have a, a, and I'll go, oh my God, I'm writing this like it's for BBC Two about 10 years ago. I need, you know, wow, it's quite, it's quite scary when you have a blank canvas and you've got a group of very loyal subscribers that just want to see history output and, and they're not super worried if you don't tell, you know, give them their dessert first, which is what you've got to do in most TV shows these days. Mm-hmm. You, know, you show them the clips they're about to see. So, um, yeah, the, the length is, is very exciting, right? I mean, I, 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 you know, some some podcasters, we've done it once or twice, they, you know, put out like a three-minute episode for a laugh one day, probably just to mess with chart position and annoy the competition, right? But you put out like a short thing and and then for Christmas, I love the fact you've got this, guys, this is two hours, this one. This is like a two-hour sit-down with some absolute, you know, Mary Beard or, or some hero of the kind of historical firmament or, or a great Second World War um, veteran or something. So, so I love that. It's so fun mm. keeping people guessing about what, what it's going to be and, and it not being straight-jacketed. Um, and that's something... But you feel the pressures to do that because also you get used to a certain way of working. So you have to sometimes really shock yourself out of it. And we, we did that the other day with a show we made about a trench. We deliberately kind of didn't do the voiceover at the start and the highlights <laughs> really, you know, we, we made sure it was kind of weird and, and unusual. So, but yeah, it's, it's, a great, it's a great point. It's a real liberation. I mean, for the film that I did, I did one version just for the family and then television came around and said, well, we want it. And they, and they, and I said, how long? I said, they said, well, an hour would be great. And I said, well, an hour, that's a lot. I only have 16 minutes down. I ended up negotiating and I did a 2742. That's why I know the number. That is how long the half hour slot was allowed to be. And in the, in the realm of podcasting, as you say, what I've discovered more and more is the interesting element of when the energy's good, let it go, let it, let it flow. The, of course, if you have an audience that says, well, I only want to dedicate 20 minutes to listen to Minter or whatever, or I only have 30 minutes, well, that's the way it is. But if you have that energy, it's so liberating to allow yourself to keep on conversing and exchanging. And, and you get, you know, the, the people being interviewed and interviewing are having an energy. And I think that does transmit, does flow through the earbuds. I agree. I, I strongly, I really feel that the success of clearly this, the dominance of on-demand content is partly a kind of tech, partly a tech thing is that mm-hmm. you can listen, listen to this, you can listen to Minta wherever you want on any device. You don't have to be sitting in your, next to your wireless in your kitchen. But also it is, an, it is an attitude of creative. There is a side to it, which is like, it was clear in the 90s we were watching Kate and this is where Donald Trump came from it's where Boris Johnson's come from it's where there, there was you know in the 90s we all watched cable news and it was so it was obviously sterile these politicians just 
yes and 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 you know entertainment figures in the entertainment world okay hey how are you i'm fine i'm just great okay that's three minutes done let's cut to commercial break i mean it, it was this it was like as formal as a sort of court pageant in in the in the sort of early in an early modern monarch's court in europe you know it's a baroque setting it was all so you could you can you, you we all knew it was like a joke we were all in on and then occasionally very rarely someone would say something rude or swear and that career would be gone do you remember like whole careers would disappear because someone would say a swear word or something slightly inappropriate and now you know you've got i mean god you've got donald trump tweeting out of the white house and i do think it's a reaction to that we we all like to listen to real conversations mm-hmm. and actually traditional media wasn't delivering those things Mm. Or if it did, it was regarded as so incredibly exciting. It deserved an Oscar award, you know, like, you know, the documentaries where it would just feature a long interview with one person. It was like seen as the most cutting edge thing ever. And in fact, that's just real life. You know, we, we wanted to. So I completely agree. So some, sometimes my podcasts are 20 minutes and then sometimes they are two hours because wh- wh- why not? I mean, that's the that's the reality of, of how we are in the, when we go to the pub and meet friends or chat on the phone. We Sometimes those conversations are quick and other times they'll change your life and they're intense and they're long and deep. So uh, I, it just feels that we're, you know, now when I watch, I watch TV, some, or, you know, I, I watch content with dad, who's a, who's a traditional journalist from the 60s, 70s and 80s in the UK. Sure. And, and he, he finds that modern world very liberating. He, he gets very excited. He kind of freaks out a little bit when he sees TV news journalists editorializing saying, Oh, this is awful. He, that's not his. He, he finds that difficult culturally. But mm-hmm. the fact that people are so relaxed, and you sometimes a camera drops into set, or the microphone falls off, and and you have a laugh, and the next door, you know, I, the, that he 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 finds that as a professional. He wishes that it had been like that, you know, in the in the seventies. He finds that so liberating and exciting that mm-hmm. that that kind of anarchy can exist when because of the tech before, the sound recording, the fact that film was expensive and you had to get things exactly right, mm-hmm. it was incredibly straight-jacketed. Storytelling. You're a storyteller. And I was wondering, I mean, I, you know, when I went to school in England, as you, I studied history, and I remember how history was taught. And at the time, there were some professors, teachers that, seemed to tell stories, but for the most part, it felt like I was slogging through dates, numbers of people, king this, king one, king two, king three. And it was sort of this chronological battery of information that I had to slog through. I was wondering from your perspective, how has history telling, storytelling changed? Uh, We've obviously just talked about the timing component, but I was wondering how else you see history storytelling change yeah i mean clearly it's transformed right i mean my kids are obsessed with horrible histories um it's transformed in the in the real world irl uh it's in real life you know you go to when i would go to a museum as a kid or a stately hampton court palace it was a fairly austere place fairly off i think fairly forbidding place i mean my kids regard all those experiences now as like a fun park you know there's people henry the eighth walking around there's you know, there's interactives. You know, so, so it's changed across the board, and of course, therefore, it's changed in the, in the classroom as well. I mean, I, I think history began as a sort of story, and I think it's it's, um, it all yeah. But it, but it, the, the the teacher is essential, and I had all sorts of different kinds of teachers like you, some of whom almost put me off it. But I think the tools available now are are so rich 
uh, not my show, you know, it was rare for us to watch video in the classroom setting in the 90s. And I think it's now very common um, video now that's embedded in in coursework. And, you know, it's not it's uh, it's not just helping the teacher kill a, a lesson. It's actually video that's tailored and and, and useful to the, to the sort of embedded in the lesson plan. So I, I think it's um, I think we're in a world where storytelling is a lot easier now, basically. And I think, by the way, that world is we're only at the beginning of it because tech every time I see a new augmented reality, virtual reality projects, and you look at the price of those beginning to come down, look at the the, the, the hardware now is, is really impressive. I mean, we're only, we're scratching the surface, you know, so we think it, we think it's terribly exciting that we're now quite good at showing the Battle of Hastings in 2D, you know, with lots of reenactors and swords and shields and everything. And, but my God, kids in 20 years time, that they're, they're going to be experiencing the Battle of Hastings like we can't imagine at the moment. So that this is a this is a this is a story that we are still at the beginning of. So my observation, Dan, is and and I may be wrong, is that we've gone from a sort of a more general approach to the opportunity and option to tell personal stories as a a link into the bigger story. I mean, we've obviously had Band of Brothers and others have done that trick per se before, but I feel like there's, and I've seen you do it with your, the, when you did the uh, Battle of Britain, you, 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 the narrative you wrote was through personal stories to tell the bigger picture. Is that something that is old or am I right in thinking that it's a little newer? So that's right. So that's a good point. So that's new. And I think that comes from the richness of historical research that's being done that we all piggyback off. Uh, and and the internet has helped that enormously. So that that those, it was, you know, it was pretty challenging to find. The, I mean, that Battle of Britain show that I made that was not my company actually, but I, I was working with Lion, who are also owned by the same ultimate owner is now our company. But uh, they are they were astonishing. But they but it you know you're looking for so we would tell the story of a day of the Battle of Britain and the story you know the pilots accounts, but the internet's made it pretty easy to find those pilots, their families, their archive that pictures their newspaper clippings so i was super impressed uh, and and it wasn't my research so i won't take the credit for it but i was super impressed with the researchers we would go on location and i'd say okay so today we're telling the story of raf kenley being attacked by these bombers okay that, you know so far so good you could imagine that being in the 90s and you know maybe one account from a pilot now you've got the german pilots account the uk pilots account the pictures of the thing you've got you've got and and that's all because the because in deep in the engine room, the big crowdsourcing historical projects going on, and now that research is is not being lost. It's all there. It's being found. It's it's being uploaded. It's being shared. It's whether it's through family history sites or uh, air, aviation sites or Wikipedia, whatever it is. So you, we're making it easier and easier for the researchers to be able to go. So now when I'm thinking about a big project for the Christmas truce this year, the World One Christmas truce. Like you're just immediately assuming that there's going to be extraordinary resource available through the keyboard. Like I've got the two best books written about the Christmas truce. So I'm leafing through at the moment. They're very useful, but you're thinking, right, well, what audio video um, and secondary historical and, and new. And it turns out that, you know, it turns out that a newspaper in Scotland conducted lengthy interviews with a couple of the last survivors of the Christmas truce who happened to be living on the East coast of Scotland in like the late nineties. Now, I don't know, but that's in the old days, you wouldn't have gone to that newspaper archive to find that those stories particularly. And so now it's quicker, it's easier. 
and I think you can sometimes underestimate, you know, we, we're so used to it, you, you forget to celebrate just how extraordinary it's been as a kind of research tool. Uh, so you're right, it is, the stories are there now. They're a lot easier. So you, you've got more choice. It's not dominated by the central narrative of like, here's the family tree of the Tudors. We know the big history. We've got like, or here's the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle telling us about this period. We've just got access to tons and tons more stuff now. And, and, I, and, and there's just more, there's tons of history being published. I mean, you know, it's a great example. A, Ed Caesar has written his book, The Moth and the Mountain, about a guy who would otherwise be forgotten. And he's just this beautiful book about a, one of the early attempts on Everest in the 1920s. And that now exists. He's like, it's like we're painting a huge big oil painting and that little tiny corner of it has now been just filled in lovely and neatly, making it easier for historians of the future and teach the future tell those stories. It's it's wonderful that you you mentioned painting. It makes me think. I want to get back to the the the, the storytelling in a moment, but painting in history uh, is is awfully interesting because you're basically painting a moment. It's hard to sort of paint a narrative in a painting, and and yet you can, of course, through different devices. But there was a second thing, and uh, my through my wedding uh, through my father's wedding. Uh, I can be related to a painter of general called Lejeune, who was a general under Napoleon, and he would actually paint the scenes. And he, so as a general, he was really involved both in the strategy, participating, and in narrating what happened. And the thing that I learned was the idea of perspective. Are you going to be painting it as a foot soldier? Are you going to be painting it as a person on a horseback? Are you going to be an eagle? flying above? Do you have the big picture, the small picture? And, and it was just fascinating to think about how history telling happens through painting. And similarly, when you're talking about personal stories, now the issue is that you have, let's say, 100,000 stories to choose from. And that can become a nightmare. You know, I, I remember Audie Murphy, because that was about the only story we were allowed to be told, other than the the numbers of people who did this and did that. It was all sort of lots of numbers and facts and figures. And then occasionally we had this little blip, one option, one story. Now we have a, a gazillion, you know, op opportunities. And so the art of storytelling and keeping the context becomes all the more difficult. Uh, you're absolutely right. I love General uh, Lejeune. He's the f one of the most famous um biographers, isn't he, with the most famous accounts of the polar period. He was a, he got, didn't get terrible frostbite in the Russian campaign or something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's really hard. I mean, yeah, as we, as we now know more about, yeah, I mean, people, history should, you know, it's very accessible, isn't it? Some, some people love the, love the, I mean, I still love the top-down history. I'm just reading a biography of Edward Gray and the outbreak of the First World War, and there's not a single mention of a normal person in it. They're all just politicians and grandees and printers and dukes. And I love that, but I also love the kind of extraordinary amount of history that's being written at the moment about quote unquote normal people, particularly about women. I mean, women, yeah. uh, historians of women's history are, are, are filling in a lot of those blanks, like that painting. I mean, we are just getting avalanches now of these women that we've forgotten to remember from the 1920s and 30s in particular. Uh, Presumably so led by your aunt. Uh, my auntie's a, a, a brilliant historian, yeah, so she's done a bit of that. And But, you know, or, or a book that I read the other day about women inventors and scientists in the First World War, you know, the forgotten women who were there in Imperial College, work, you know, working on teams to, you know, do what the men would improve 
efficacy of weapon systems and stuff. So yeah, uh, so, but to come back to your question, um, the, so it is really hard to know. I mean, I think, God, can you imagine writing modern history? You know, I'm really struck by like <laughs> someone like Dominic Sandbrook who writes histories of the 80s. Like, how do you write history of the 1980s? I mean, or the 90s, like, you've got so much source material. How do you even begin to get your head around and choose how you're going to tell that story? And that's why when it's done well, it's like a, it's like a, a master crafts person uh, because it just weaves and Michael Wood's recent history of China was beautiful. It, it weaved huge, big strategic Chinese history in with poets and merchants and people and peasants. Uh, you know, it, it took breaks from the narrative. So, so yeah, it can be done, but it's it's a it's a really difficult thing to do. So, we've been um, we're between podcasting and the TV side of history. Hit, do you see uh, a difference in the consumption with regard to the content? In other words, you know, medieval history much better on TV, less good on podcasting. Yeah. Is there any well, play between the audio and the visual? That's a really very good question, and we haven't crunched numbers enough yet. The audio, the, the visual we do find, perhaps we were a bit surprised and perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised in retrospect, but we do find that the video is a little bit more predictable. Um, the First and Second World War do very well, Second World War does very well, and the Tudors do well, and kind of castles, like high medieval sort of castles do well. Uh, and I kind of maybe thought video-wise we would we would be able to get people, our, our fans, you know, watching slightly different shows. But we've definitely you see a lot more you see a lot more kind of um, concentration around particular subjects in the video. Audio is very odd. We actually can't find we actually can't really find any patterns uh, to the audio. Um, there's one or two breakout shows that you can see why they're particularly good. And they often do skew a bit modern because if it's a veteran talking, like an SAS veteran of the Falklands War talking about their experiences there, you, you kind of go, okay, I get that. You know, that's kind of a pretty extraordinary thing to talk about. Um, but in terms of a historian giving you a kind of 20 minute, half an hour breakdown on a period of history, we, it's very weird. We get very weird results being thrown up. You know, we get deeply unusual you know, the, the ones that I think are going to do well, like I think this is a bit of red meat. Let's get a D-Day episode out and shut that out there. That doesn't do particularly well on the audio. I think it's audio, it's in your feed. You listen to what's up or you skip a few. Whereas TV, you're, it's a Netflix experience. You're coming to it and just going, right, here's my big main menu. I, I'm, I'm not super interested in um, in hatship suit ancient Egypt, but I, I, I will soak up the next, you know, the most recent World War II project. So, it, the, the, I think the behaviours are very different. And if I, mm. that's the way I, I mean, I, I watched, I, I, you know, when I'm watching TV, it's, I go onto my Netflix or, or whatever, and I go, I, I want to watch this show that I've heard about or whatever. But on my podcast, yeah, I just, I get what I'm given, which I think is another, another reason creators like podcasts, because we're all kind of narcissistic weirdos, right? And, and it's the good thing about podcasts is, the audience just do tend to listen to one after the other. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's a greater intentionality to the video. You have to sit in a place, turn on a, a screen, and, and, and presumably you might be with somebody, it's an event after a meal. Yeah. I mean, and so it brings up this idea of, of Netflix, because on History Hit, as, as you know, I, I've been a thankful subscriber, uh, I've noticed you don't have a recommendation engine a la Netflix. And so 
you're really kind of left to your own devices. I mean, you make your, you have your propositions up top, but it's not like a personal based on your last thing you watch. This is what you should watch kind of thing. Is that something that you is on the docket now that you have some bigger pockets? Yeah. My uh, naive, um, my naive take on the world seems to be that if, if Netflix invents something amazing, a company like Netflix is so amazing within two or three years, there are going to be, uh, people out there offering cheaper white label solutions, those kind of things for, for your, for your end, for your business. So, so we've had meetings with people who effectively the pitch is we, we, we'll, we offer similar AI to what you're going to get at Netflix. So around retention, around understanding behavior, around recommendation. So, you know, down to the fact that um, if you know some, you can tell if someone's about to churn off, they're going to cancel their subscription because their viewing patterns change. They interact much less they give it one last go and then immediately stop whatever it might be. And Netflix immediately sends up a little red flag. So we could send that person a message going, hey, by the way, uh, we know you love Henry VIII. Well, look at this, check that show we just got over. So yeah, we are in the process of doing that kind of stuff. But you're absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, it is far less sophisticated, of course, than, than Netflix at the moment. And, it, and that goes for everything. That goes to payment, that goes to subscription. I mean, if you, if you go to the Washington Post owned by Amazon, or Jeff Bezos, which benefits from all of Amazon's learnings around how to get us to pay for things, which is a lot of learnings. You know, you go to the Amazon, you go to the Washington Post, and you kind of breathe in the general direction of your phone. You've just subscribed annually, recurring, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. So, so whereas at the, at the start of our adventure three years ago, we were like still kind of credit cards being sort of upload, you know, entered and postal addresses like you know what state do you live in and, and you could just see people falling out of the filter left right and center right just the funnel rather they would yeah it was a filter <laughs> they, yes, they were yes. just collapsing out of the funnel and we eventually some brave god bless their cotton socks some brave souls were actually getting into the you know through the paywall so yeah. so i think when, when it comes to paywall when it comes to retention when it comes to ai when it comes to behavior yeah clearly all of these things are going to be bolt-ons uh, and um, and but the but of course but they're out there. The companies offering those solutions are out there. And what about ratings and reviews by the users? Is that I mean felt that feels like a, a lighter touch component. But then again, you know you might say, oh crap, YouTube hatred spammers, you know those type of trollers. Yeah, I mean I think we'd be a good point. I mean I think we'd be pretty confident with the people that are inside the system and already subscribers. I think we'd be. But yeah, it's it's community management. It's probably just another another job, and and we'll get there. We think a lot about that because, of course, we're thinking uh, we want more, obviously, community engagement. Um, but also in terms of people, I mean, a lot. Of, I mean, we, you know, films and ideas and are coming from people as well. So uh, we're already getting people within our community submitting films, uh, finished films and film ideas, which is great. Mm. But whether and eventually there'll be probably a system for, you know. A community area um, for discussion and uh, and su- suggestion, as you say, in ratings. That's that's for sure something that we've something that we've talked about. But at the moment, it looks a little bit too much for our our little team to handle. Right, sure. Um, you got uh, the. It seems uh, more than a hundred thousand subscribers to the History Hit TV side of things. I was wondering. We're actually. Is that not, right? We're actually no. That's a, that is also a miss. That was a miss. Was a very happy. But that is, <laughs> that's an exaggeration. Yeah. I see. 
All right. Well, soon to be. Uh, the point I was going to ask was that uh, for us uh, during the the lockdown period, obviously people are are going to documentaries. There seems to be a a general play on Netflix and elsewhere towards documentaries. I I was wondering what your the relationship is with history. Is there a is is it because we want facts because there's so much fake news that history is is coming up? Is there is it a nostalgic reassurance to do documentaries in a time of pandemia? How do you see the relationship we have? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think it depends on the audience. Um, I think a lot of people like history. A lot of people say to me on Twitter, "Just oh oh, stop talking about politics. I, I want I want history." And so I think for them, history is escape perfectly fine. Um, they find the past a, a place where you can be fascinated and not made to be uncomfortable, actually. They, that's what they... I, I'm different, personally. I'm uh, The past is a place that makes me hugely uncomfortable um, because it hmm. challenges me and, it, it's, you know, it's incredibly... Uh, just, it, it makes you think about the present, about you, about life. So when I'm reading about in, enslaving our fellow humans... What I'm thinking about there is not, oh, I'm so clever, I'm not saving fellow humans. I'm thinking about, well, how are our, how are our descendants going to regard our relationship with the animals which provide food for us, if, if we are still meat eaters, right? How, how are future generations going to regard our, our environmental practices? Uh, spoiler, you know, they're going to think we were insane, right? Uh, and so therefore, history is something that's provocative and should be enormously uncomfortable. But anyway, so, so some people, I think, just watch it for escapism, that's fine. I do think people are also turned to history, and I do hear this is true of university departments, since 2008, arguably 2001, 9-11, when the world clearly, things ha were happening, right? So in the 1990s, you'll remember just, you were very young, so was I, but there was a really powerful sense that, that history had kind of come to an end, and it was all just super chilled. There was, there were, there were some, um, it can, it, there was genocide in Rwanda, civil war in Congo that was convenient to ignore, but on the whole, Russia was like a vague democracy. China was beginning to trade, looked like it could be managed with the international system. Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, everything was like, well, this is all, this is kind of fine. This is where it all ends up, right? And 9-11 happened, then the gigantic uh, recession happened, 2008, and then COVID happened. Re-emergence of great power rivalry, uh, environmental catastrophe in the offing. So suddenly we're all just like, oh, wow, okay, history didn't stop. We do need to, oh, it turns out we need to know about how Britain carved up the Middle East after the First World War, because we've got guys in, uh, you know, we've got guys ripping down, you know, in ISIS, ripping down that border and screaming about British, you know, British politicians 100 years ago. Um, turns out we do need to know about what happens when society, when there's climate change and its effect on societies and agriculture and and, and resources in you know northwest africa today or you know it turns out we do need to know these things um oh it turns out we do need to know what happens when nationalists try and subvert subvert democracy so so i think history is kind of back in that way as well and it, it was never a way of course but we i think a lot of people and, and you see this with undergraduate numbers a lot of people realize that history is pretty darn important and and uh, and and fascinating and all the other things. So I think it depends on audience and why people are accessing history. But I do think we're thinking about it more. So the last question for you, Dan. So I went to university in the United States and I studied a thing called decontextualization when it came to literary study. 
it, it occurs to me, or it feels to me, that taken out of context, anything can be horrible. I was wondering what, what, what comes to your mind when you use decontextualization and history. How do you, what's, your, what's the association in your mind between those two words, two concepts? Um, I, it makes me feel, uh, it makes me feel very um, terrified, really. Uh, I will, um, here we go. I'm just going to, what I'm going to do, I'm just pulling up a thing. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to give it a quick Google here, buddy. Go for it. To get the, um, Facts right. You know, this is like Joe Rogan. We're, we're like, we're real time. <laughs> um, I want to get the, the terms correct because I, I, um, I spend most, I've, my basically did you got recontextualization, which is a, uh, um, okay, here we go. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously when you decontextualize someone, you sort of take something, you sort of take it out of its context, which it, it's historians is like a, is, is quite problematic anyway. Um, and so I, I, you know, that, that this is a kind of argument around political science and history and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So historians, so context Sta is, statues, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. So context is, is hugely important. So like, is a, is a statue of Robert E. Lee in a, in a town, uh, simply a memorial to a, a general in a war 150 years ago? Or do we learn when we look at the context in which it was put up that that was actually a statue put up in a town where there was a movement among its African-American uh, citizens to, in particularly perhaps a focus of, in the struggle for equal rights, but civil and political and social rights, economic rights in the, in the 60s. And was this put up as a, as a, as a statement piece in the 60s or, or was it erected uh, way back in the immediate aftermath of the war when Robert E. Lee was something of a folk hero to the people of to some people in the South. So I, I, you know, so therefore historians are always really keen to make sure that we keep context. Uh, that, we, that we are very, very mindful of context, right? So, so the state and the good example is the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol that got toppled into the ocean Indeed. Uh, here in the UK. And, and he was a, and that was very deliberately put up, you know, that was put up hundreds of years after he lived as part of a, at a time of struggle between powerful new radical political forces in British society and, and an older aristocratic uh, patrician uh, way, out, outlook on the world uh, in the late 19th century. So it's kind of, it was nothing to do with like the grateful citizens of Bristol putting up this statue of, of someone who just died, say, I mean, Benefactor. something like, you know, something like more like Nelson's column, perhaps, although that's also has a context, but where, where quite rapidly after someone dying, you put up a, a, a memorial. Um, so I, I, you know, I think uh, decontextualization is obviously kind of problematic. That point of view. However, I also do like, I like historical parallels. I think it's, I like examples. I think it's important to think about why it is that you get the same things, similar similar things happening in late Tang, China, as you do thousands of miles away in other empires that are suffering from external threats, uh, domestic sort of corruption and malaise. Um, you know, what, like, I think that's exciting in history. I think it's kind of cool that you can look at parallels and think, this is, well, that's interesting. What's going, what's go what's going on here? Why do these systems, why do these systems collapse? 
Um, not every single one is unique, therefore, sorry, every single one is unique, but they're not all uh, completely different to each other. Uh, and I think that it is therefore like when you're studying the collapse of Italian democracy in the 1920s and, and talking and then, and then using some of those lessons to think about Donald Trump today, I think that is exciting and useful. But you shouldn't. But you should be mindful that everything has a has a context for sure. It reminds me of what you were saying earlier, where you say, "Well, I, I still appreciate reading history the old-fashioned way, top-down, because at some level, that's the sort of the the big picture." And if we get stuck, you know, s swooped in by the individual who was in the battle, who was killed, or this and that, and we sort of get overly drawn into the personal story. We, we can lose sight of the bigger picture. And for me, the bigger picture is the context. And so as, as we consume more and more sort of personal stories and the, and the lovely storytelling that happens, we do need to link it back to the reality uh, of the time. We can judge it through our own prism of today in today's context, fine. But we, we shouldn't necessarily judge what they did then at that time with today's values. Yeah, of course, that this is the whole, that whole argument, of course, is correct. Uh, I find the idea of sort of judging, yeah, I mean, look, it's hugely, pro heroes, the whole idea of someone being a hero or having a statue, the whole thing's really problematic anyway. Like, I mean, I no one should put a statue up of me. Like, I mean, it's like, you shouldn't, I mean, statues are weird. They're, they're really old fashioned. Um, uh, and so therefore, the, the whole idea of, like, I find it very difficult going, was the was the British Empire good or bad? Was the Roman Empire good or bad? Like, I, I mean, like what? I I don't know. Like what? By what standards? Like what are you talking about? Exactly. Um, and and it's sort of unhelpful, in a way. I well, I think it's unhelpful. I mean, obviously, lots of philosophers and people cleverer than I am spend a lot of time talking about this, but I don't understand. I don't understand. It is it like what? What is looking back from the past? Most things are sort of, in, oh, everything's deeply imperfect, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing, for, there's nothing, a single thing in the past, you go, oh, that's just unalloyed brilliance. By even the way, past, still today. Yeah. And, and still today, of course, today it's even harder, but because we know more, but even, even scientific breakthroughs in the past, you could argue, uh, led to, oh, that's amazing, all these wonderful scientists, the Enlightenment and before, well, what, they've created an economic, system and an energy system that means we've just we're destroying life on earth so even things that you think are quite uncontested even dare i say god i don't know like things like medical breakthroughs of course they've alleviated extraordinary pain and suffering but we now have seven billion people on the planet which is too many like so i, I like if someone said to me i'm maybe i've been doing history for so long and talking to lots of clever people you, you end up not knowing left from right but like someone goes was this like is <laughs> um was this vac is this vaccine good i'd have to stop and go like i don't i don't know if the smallpox vaccine <laughs> because i'm suddenly now thinking like yes it, of course it is but we've got like the greatest problem that we've yet dealt with in the history of humanity is there are too many humans smashing up the resource of this planet and therefore like mm -hmm. oh i don't know so clearly i'm glad that i and my children and every, i'm glad no family has to go through the misery of burying their own children from smallpox but so yeah, I find it very difficult, that whole good and bad argument. Mm. I, and also I don't think it's very rewarding. Um, other than to say, other than to say, look, none of these things that you've been brought up to regard as perfect are perfect. And what that should tell you is that neither of the things that are around you today, uh, the things that 
whether it's the church, your, your political settlement, your personal habits, the way you live, the way your society is organized. Don't, don't go around thinking it's great because it, it isn't. And um, it's not the platonic ideal form. But yeah, I, th- I find that whole area very tr- tr- troubling. Well, my, the role of history in my life has essentially been to remind me how darn lucky I am. Yeah. And, and, it, and I feel like, and maybe it's because I'm getting old, Dan, because I'm 56, so far older. But there's a, a notion of values that I may have a nostalgic feel for, but somehow the, what my grandparents went through, which feels close enough, their values are something to be respected. Obviously not perfect, like you say, but it's a reminder how we should cultivate good values and be thankful for what we have today, even if we have to share it with 7 billion other people. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Tell me if you had a final comment, sure, and uh, how people can best follow you, track you down, Mr. Snow. Well, you're abs- first of all, you're absolutely right. The main purpose, the main purpose of history for me is, is mental wellness. I, I'm not joking. I find I find it enormously improves my life when you when you read about just how ex- extraordinarily lucky, uh, particularly our generation, really might be because it might not be as good for the kids. But um, <laughs> if the science is right, so so I, I feel it like I'm, I'm unimaginable. The fact that I was never conscripted to go and fight in a savage war. Totally. Uh, which I had no stake in the outcome and, and, and health concerns, pain relief, dating apps, you name it. I mean, we are extraordinary. Uh, food security. I mean, uh, food security. And then, and then the, the idea that it, we just expect the kind of diet that was only available even a hundred years ago to the most unbelievably wealthy people in society. We can now go mm. and, and purchase cheaply in the high street. Nearly, nearly everybody's lucky enough to do that. So you're entirely right. In terms of finding me, you can just go to the, I'm overactive on Twitter. I'm the history guy on Twitter. But, um, and if you're interested in the history at podcast, it's wherever you get your pods. So thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks again. Lovely to chat about a good topic and um, carry on. Good luck with history at TV. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. is a real
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.